0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Deep in History. This is Uh, Marcus Grode, I joined with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson as we walk slowly through our wonderful book from Irenaeus, Against Heresies. I do hope those of you that have been following along uh, are enjoying this. Uh, We'd love to hear more from you. Uh, We're getting close to the end, aren't we, Monsignor? We're moving right along now. Yeah. (laughs) And In some ways, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me and maybe it's the things going on in the other parts of my life, but I'm finding this particular section a little hard to get through. Uh, And it might be because he's... um, uh, My view of what's happening at this point in the book is, and maybe it's just the lens which I look at things, is two things. Number one, it seems to me That as he's bringing this whole long argument to a close, he really has one goal in mind. He's not out to belittle or to anger or to um, embarrass or, and whatever the Gnostics. He wants to convert them to the faith. That's his goal. And he's speaking to them in their categories to bring them home.
1: Well, and he's addressing some of their, you know, their, their pet beliefs that are um, absolute impediments to their salvation. Uh, today, for instance, it's all about the, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and they didn't. It would be like today, um, if you wanted to
0: prepare... Christian faithful to reach out to the lost how are you going to do that well we're preparing the Christian faithful to address the lost in the categories in which people are lost so you've got to know what it is those people out there either believe or don't believe and 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 then address train the faithful to be able to withstand those false teachings but at the same time that's not enough. The, the, we've got to be able to reach through those false teachings to bring them the gospel. That's what Irenaeus is doing with this. He's preparing the people to understand what the Gnostics believe, their falsities, but how to reach out to the Gnostics in their categories. Would you say that's That's, right. that's yeah. kind of what we're doing? Yeah. Now, to me, beneath that is, I'm seeing more and more as I listen to Irenaeus, as well as in my own private studies, that the theme of the two ways is such a clear paradigm of understanding not only the faith, but all of salvation history. I mean, there's a lot of ways of understanding salvation history, the covenantal theories and the dispensationalism and all these different ways, and they're all you know, good or bad. But The underlying idea of all of salvation history, from Adam all the way to Revelation, is simply you're either with God or you ain't. Excuse my South Ohio language. There's two ways, right? You're either with God or you're not. And that's all of Scripture.
1: Mm -hmm. That's
0: all the teaching of the church. It's everything. You're either with God or not. Now, how you're with God has divided Christians throughout the ages. We get into justification and sanctification and all these different issues. But the bottom line is, grace, predestination, foreknowledge, all these issues deal with either with God or you're not. And at the end of Revelation, it says you'll be will be judged. Aaron ans- emphasizes, right? The two sides will be judged. And it'll be judged on what you've done. This is the two ways, and we're right in the middle of discussing the two ways. Again, he's using from the two ways to address the Gnostics' categories of anthropology. Right
1: on the you know the two ways. I I was thinking of how when we go back a little bit earlier in the Didache and some of the yeah. early writings that. That's really emphasized. and It seems like that was the, um, the homiletical style of the apostles. When they went out and preached the gospel, they must have taught their successors. This is how you preach. Keep it simple. Keep it direct and focused on the choice that's before each person.
0: I'm kind of the impression that what developed over the centuries in the church has sometimes been a downplaying of the two ways. A, a, a muddling up the issues. That's fair enough. I agree. Yeah, you, you know, and you know, in the Old Testament, the most common complaint by the prophets, and it's in David and it's Solomon, was God saying, "I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart." And I think what he was getting was criticizing is that people were thinking that by the doing of this sacrificial act, that's all that's necessary. And I've accomplished through the doing of this sacrificial act, what is necessary to fulfill the two ways. And God's saying, no, the doing of that sacrificial act in itself, isn't going to determine whether you're on the right way or the wrong way. It's where your heart is.
1: And and on the other side of that question is um, the the attitude that we find, especially today, it, it all depends. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's just a way of yeah. putting aside or pushing down the road the essential decision that a person has to make.
0: Well, I've not read the book, but there was some book about 50 or so shades of gray I've not read the book. I don't know my, excuse me, audience. I don't really know. I've heard about it. But my point is, that's a way of getting away from, there's a black and a white here. Excuse me. Yeah. There's a black and a white here. You're either with God or you're not. And Irenaeus is very clear on that. Very clear on, it's a black and a white. And right. when, when we reach the end of our lives, there's a black and a white and uh, a wonderful book by, uh, by Father Thomas Dubay, God Bless his Soul, a book called Authenticity. He's got a chapter in there on the two ways, and he lists all the different descriptions of the two ways throughout Scripture, all the dichotomies going all the way down. And so when we often think of the two ways in Scripture, we might think of Psalm 1. I'm telling you, every single Psalm deals with the two ways,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the wicked, the righteous, the rich, the poor. I mean, it's just, there's two ways. Rich and poor. In other words, what's your God? Is it wealth? It's black and white, folks. Very clear, and we we react to that. And so we—that's why we want gray areas. Eh, some people can't help this or the situation. We—it's they're black and whites because it's what's going on in here, what's going on in your heart. Um, so. To me, that's the backdrop. So in the context, last week we talked in book five, we went through, if I remember correctly, let's see, we did chapters whatever through eight. And that's when he or he's in the process, but he's he's honing in on this idea of two kinds of people. There's the perfect or spiritual man, and there's the carnal or animal man. The perfect spiritual man are those who have received the spirit and exhibit the spiritual gifts. The spiritual or whole man consists of, and this gets into your anthropology, Monsignor, which you're going to talk about, body, soul, and spirit. Separately, body, soul, and spirit are parts of the whole man. And that's what we talked about last week, right, Monsignor? Yeah. The body is the carnal substance of the flesh, the form of the man, and that dies. Whereas the soul is the incorporeal part of the human being, its the, or the breath of life, Irenaeus talks about. And then there's the spirit. And he refers to either the spirit of man or the spirit of God. And so what makes the difference, black and white, is the spirit that's in us. And the carnal, animal man are those who reject the Spirit of God. A person becomes an animal man when he denies the Spirit and the soul is wanting of the Spirit. And last week we talked about in chapter 8 where he says, he kind of says, hey guys, this isn't new. This is what the Old Testament said from beginning to end. And it uses these images of the clean and unclean. And he has a fun time with that. Right?
1: He, oh yeah, we had we had a good time with that too. Yeah.
0: You know, the double hoof and the chewed yeah. cud. The clean have the double hoot and clean cud excuse me, have the double hoof and chew the cud, and the unclean are a combination thereof that don't have the above. So in other words, The clean or the faithful are those that both have the double hoof and the chewed cud. Well, what's he talking about? Irenaeus says, well, the double hoof is faith in the father and the son. The stability of faith, father and son. John uh, John talks about you can't have one without the other, right? You can't have the father without the son. You can't have the son without the father. So that's where Irenaeus is getting that. Makes you wonder. He got that from Polycarp. We got it from John. And then the chewed cud is those that... that muse on the Word, Lexio Divina, who study the Word, dig themselves into the Word. Okay. So the faithful have both hands. And he said that the unclean consists of three different groups. You can, those that have neither faith in the Father and the Son and don't muse on the Word, he called the heathen, they're a part of the unclean. Those that don't have faith in the Father and the Son but do read the Scriptures were the Jews. And those that have faith in the Father and the Son, but don't really listen to Scripture, he says, are the heretics. And he put those all in the unclean. And Monsignor, I would say that this is during the time of the development in the church, when the idea of the necessity of being a part of the church is starting to develop. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's kind of what he just said here.
1: Well, of course, yeah. And, and remember those Gnostics, they want to start their own congregations. Right. 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 Right.
0: So why does he say you've got to come home to the church? Because that's the only place you're going to get the fullness of the apostolic deposit of faith. Apart from the church, you're going to get all these that's diff- right. different yeah. ideas. So you need to be a part of the church. So he has this wonderful summary paragraph that I thought I'd—this is from last week, but I thought it would be a good way to introduce us this week into our study— And I think it's on page 466 in which he says, Justly, therefore, to all such who through their unbelief and luxury fail to attain the Spirit of God, and by diverse marks which which they bear, cast out the word which giveth them life, and walk irrationally in their own lusts, the apostle first have given the name of carnal and animal while the prophets have turned them beasts of burden and wild beasts customer gonna oh my my no, i i misprinted here i hate spell spell check you know i typed <laughs> I know. this in and it, yeah. it put a bunch of stuff in there because it yeah. didn't, it didn't know what i was saying it's my fault i'm not blaming the computer but that paragraph uh, kind of sums up this idea of the two different people and again Irenaeus is talking about those Gnostics. I'm hearing Irenaeus talking about us. we got to bring this 2,000 years later and ask, what's he saying about us today in the context of our crazy world that we're living in?
1: Oh, I think, great point you make. And just, uh, everybody should always keep in mind, when we come across these older words, um, carnal and animal, these are, technical words, they refer to two different parts of the human person, the flesh and the soul. So, I, I mean, I think that's that's a critical point to make sense of what all these these um, chapters are talking about here. So, we're,
0: we're assuming that behind Irenaeus' intellect is some influence by
1: the Greek philosophies of the time. Oh, sure, yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think so. He, w- But as you've said, too, you pointed out uh, last week, um, he's not totally consistent in how he uses this language. Right. Um, so it's not, I mean, we're not, yeah. we don't really have what um, later will later we'll come up with a tripartite view of a human person, body, yeah. soul, and spirit. Um, I, the more I read this, the more I, spirit is something that is proper to, um, to God. And our spirit, spirit is in us because of the action of the word and the Holy spirit. Um, otherwise when that's, if that's withdrawn from us because our soul has looked toward the flesh, um, you know, when, a person, if a person is damned and goes to hell, the spirit is not there. The soul and the and the body go, but there's no spirit to take.
0: In the section we looked at last week, he does make a distinction at least one point between the spirit of man and the spirit of God. One place, but in all the other yeah. places, it's not that clear. Yeah, is what That's you're right. saying. Yeah, and. and we're going to jump into five nine here in a second, folks. But I just want to make one other point here. My background came out of Lutheranism and Calvinism as a pastor, and very much of this idea of once saved always saved. I was never totally comfortable with it, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I, I always jokingly said I was a four and a half point Calvinist or whatever, but. But this idea of can a person lose their salvation was a big bugaboo amongst so many, it is, amongst so many Protestants. And there's a huge camp that says, once you accepted Jesus way back when you went to your Bible camp at Lake Geneva or wherever, and you accepted Jesus when you were five years old, you're saved no matter what you do. Luther said he could commit adultery 10,000 times a day and not lose his salvation. Now, whether he really said that or not, or... <laughs> <laughs> or whether he could even, but whatever. Uh, but the point was, the idea was that our, we're so depraved and lost that our salvation is such a gift of grace that we had nothing to do whatsoever to bring it about. There's also nothing so ever we can do to lose it because it's so totally God. And the reason you're caught up in this, it, it's the it's to me the danger of the philosophy of the either or either the sovereignty of God or the freedom of man's will. And so you're stuck in this, in this conundrum. And so the, 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 you don't want to take away from God's sovereignty, so the pendulum always swings in that direction, which led to a once saved always sage philosophy. But when you read Scripture, excuse me, and when you read Irenaeus, clearly mm-hmm. you can fall away. You can lose it all. And it has to do with, and you're going to talk about this later, which direction your soul is leaning. Isn't that the point of almost everything he said in this whole section?
1: That's right. That's right. And, you know, St. Augustine would talk about how um, we were predestined for salvation and all that. But the, the point I think he would want to make, too, is, yeah, God has... In God's foreknowledge, he sees everything, but we don't. Yeah. We don't know that. And he makes the point against the Donatists that um, you can be— yeah, there are a lot of people that have been baptized but won't be in heaven. Yeah, that is—well,
0: uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he's talking all the way through here, about the fact of faith, the necessity of not turning away from the Spirit, not driving the Spirit away, and it's so clear here. So we're going to look at today, and uh, we're going to follow the pattern we've done the last couple weeks, is uh, I'm going to go through the outline. We're going to go through chapters 9 through 13, and we're going to get through those today. And I won the bet last week, Monsignor, because we did get through those. So we're going to get through these today. Okay. And what I'll do is I'll do the overview. And Monsignor, I want you to jump in absolutely every time you have something to add. But you have a title for today's program, Monsignor. I thought, why don't you give the title and explain why?
1: Okay. Well, the title that I thought might, uh, might fit is No Admission Without Your Body. Um, And the the idea idea, we're going to find as as we get further into these readings today is um, that the soul or the spirit of man doesn't go to heaven without the body. The body, soul, and spirit, if you will, body and soul are an integral whole. And they've been perfected so they have the spirit of God in them too. So, um, the idea that our souls go to heaven, but our bodies are, are left behind on earth, that's what he would condemn.
0: Okay. Excellent. Now, so we're going to start on 467. And I just saw a, uh, a misprint. Oh, yeah, I just saw a misprint, and I wonder what is going on here. A misprint in my notes. So. I just caught oh, it no. here. That's all right. Okay. A slight misprint. Text, no, okay. no, 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 no. So um, in chapter five, and we're what we're going to do, folks, is just give an overview of these sections. We're assuming you're reading. We don't want to take away anything from you reading the actual, because uh, what, what I'm amazed by what Irenaeus does is that... This is essentially one long, very detailed Bible study. We're not quoting all of his scriptures. And it amazes me, again, every time scene, I see how much he quotes scripture. Yeah. And he knows it. Again, as I've said before, it reminds me of John Paul II. I mean, it's just one big, long Bible study. Um, And it reminds me of so many of the, I have to admit, Protestant leaders that brought me to Christ I mean, it was all by, look at this scripture, look at this scripture, look at this scripture, look at this scripture, look at this... And that's what he's doing. And he's doing that because the agnostics are using these scriptures wrongly. And so the first section, chapter 5, excuse me, book 5, chapter 9, section 1, page 467, he's basically addressing a question. How does one understand 1 Corinthians 15.50. And 15.50 is, I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now that verse, Monsignor, isn't true? That verse is underlying this entire section. How do you understand what that verse means?
1: And again, you know, I was just trying to think of his audience here, or the ones he's writing about. They'd agree with him. Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's got to be clear about what he means, how he interprets this verse. Because this would have been a favorite text of the Gnostics. It, you know, the Gnostics
0: yeah. make this division, spirit is good, flesh is bad. Mm-hmm. This verse emphasizes that. All yeah. the ideas in, script, in in history that want to say the physical nature of this world is bad. Our bodies are bad. We have a good spirit trapped in this bad body. People that think of death as a release of the spirit from this bad body, well, they see it from that scripture. There it says that. You understand what I'm also getting at, folks? Scripture alone can be a danger. If you just go from the Bible, you drop your open the Bible, and drop your finger on that text, and it says that, so how am I going to explain that to my... You know, uh, that's a problem. You need to interpret Scripture within the rule of faith, as Irenaeus says, the apostolic deposit of faith. But people that don't like that come up with their own ideas. That was the Gnostics. So that's what... But the beauty is that he's not... Running away from the scripture, the clear teaching of scripture sounds on the surface like our bodies can't go to heaven because they're incorruptible. I mean, they're corruptible. So if the corruptible can't inherit the incorruptible, then then what do you mean, I believe, in the resurrection of the body? How do I answer that question? That's what he's
1: dealing with here. That's what he's dealing with. Marcus, did you see just a couple of sentences down, too, on section one? Um um, there are three things of which we have shown the perfect man consists flesh, soul, and spirit the perfect man um the one who is not perfect lacks the spirit basically, basically yeah the way he he
0: described i'm sorry
1: no that I would just say that's um that i think that he that's the one thing we consistently see is the perfect man has those three things. The imperfect man has an imperfect spirit, basically.
0: He, I drew a diagram on my notes that if you could envision uh, uh, what he is saying here, that if you can en- envision this three part type, the three parts yeah. of man, flesh, and then spirit at the top, and in the middle you have the soul. And the spirit, he describes as that which saves and gives form. So it's the spirit of God that gave us form, is our creator, and it's what saves us, is the spirit. The flesh at the bottom, he uses the word, it's united. Mm-hmm. I wasn't 100% sure what he meant by that, but it's united as a part of the whole person. It's, it's not, it's not It's a part, but it's not a human being. And it is formed. It's pass- It, it, it ha- Our existence is passive because we came about through the gift of the creator. So we have the spirit at the top, and, and in the middle we have the soul. That's and, right. And the question is, which way is the soul leaning, folks? That's the bottom line. Bottom line. The whole thing. Is it, is it leaning towards the spirit in which he says it's therefore exalted, or does the soul sink down to earthly lusts? that's the question that's 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 the
1: question so so you think you know so for irenaeus spirit soul is the will the center of the will the seat of the will which involves the heart and um it also affects the mind as well too because you know they can if it's going the wrong direction there's a distorted mind as well. Yeah. I mean, it'll, yeah. we'll get
0: to this in a little bit here, yeah. but it reminds me of something I think people miss too much today. Oh, boy, sadly, in, in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, he, uh, four or five times he says, You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you and in every case nearly the distinction he makes is that it isn't merely the act but it's what's going on in here and in your mind w- what are you thinking what are you lusting what are you what is it that's driving behind the actual act so that's what you're talking about the will the heart the mind our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount is saying that's where we are saved or condemned. It's in here. That's a good point, yeah. It's in here. It's really in here, which is the behind the act of itself. So, in 4-9, excuse me, 5-9 section, or yeah, section 2 on four sixty seven, um. Those who fear God believe in the advent of his Son and by faith settle in their hearts the Spirit of God. Such are called men and pure and spiritual and live unto God because they have the Spirit of the Father which purifies mankind and raises him to the life of God. There's kind of a summary of what he's saying. The spiritual man it involves fear of God, belief, Faith, the Spirit, it changes us. And he talks about it, the power of the Spirit must master the weakness of the flesh. And to me, what that spoke of is Irenaeus affirming the fact that this is not just a one-time thing. It's a process.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a conversion process that takes all the rest of our life. A constant Vigilance by grace. If we don't mention grace enough here, we got to be careful, Monsignor, that we don't sound too Pelagian here. This is all by grace, us responding to grace. But, it's, but God, is, as Irenaeus said a number of chapters earlier, it's, it's our freedom to act. God never makes anybody follow him. He gives us grace, but we we are free to respond. In in um, Monsignor, you, you, you pause me whenever you want to.
1: Well, I said you know um, on top of page four sixty eight too. I thought I underlined the very top sentence there about the ro- the martyrs as witnesses here. Okay. Um, to how this all works, you know that um, they they have they have looked to the Spirit. Um, and the Spirit has led in their witness.
0: You know, we—it's uh, another topic, but it—it it really does amaze me. Here we are, two thousand years later. We live in a century. I think they say there was more martyrs in the twentieth century than all the all the years before combined. But still, we—we we Christians don't don't view the fact that martyrdom was more the normal expectation of a Christian who lived out his faith as it was in the early church. If, if you truly lived out the faith that Christ gives us, simplicity, detachment, all these things, and you, and, and you don't ever back down from proclaiming Jesus as Lord... Expect martyrdom.
1: That was the norm. He was, and as he wrote this, I mean, in in just a few years, he had he had been away in Rome when much of the leadership of the Church of Lyon was martyred in a local persecution. So, I mean, it must have been an incredibly lib, you know, immediate sense that he had here of this. He's martyred, isn't he? Th- that's a tradition. We there's not um, clear evidence about it, but it is he is included in the in the martyrology. Yes, yeah,
0: it's just it's what yeah. it's, it's what's understood. It's the norm. Paul mm-hmm. expected that. That was the norm. After Constantine, it became less and less the norm, and less and less the expectation, and more and more something odd oh, just happened way back then. Uh,
1: anyway, so. Well, you know what, I just, anticipating where we're going to come a little bit Please. later too, that last uh, sentence in, uh, in, in section two, um, out of the two is made up the living man living by his participation of the spirit and a man by the substance of his flesh. Um, another example of how the soul is, is critical here. Yeah when we get to that question about community. Um, yeah, Oh, yes, we're there now. In, uh, in section
0: yeah. 3, chapter 2, on page 468, um, that whole big section, there's a lot of great stuff in there, but basically, the flesh and the earthly form without the spirit is dead, cannot be saved. Mm-hmm. But... The Spirit of God makes flesh conformable to the Word of God and can be saved. Therefore, he says, keep well the Spirit of God by faith and pure conversation. This idea of conversation, his use of that term, Monsignor, I found confusing. I'm not used to seeing conversation in that context
1: yeah and it's you know again it's the conversation is if you will between our soul and the spirit which has come down from above because um, where where was i here what is the earthly thing the created form what again the heavenly the spirit as then saith he we have had our conversation sometime sometime without the heavenly spirit in the oldness of the flesh so the soul is having its conversation if you will with the flesh um not obeying god so now receiving the spirit let us walk in newness of life obeying god so it's it's that fellowship or that communion or community you use the word um, yeah.
0: The Greek word that he's translating yeah. here in in the New Testament is often translated commonwealth,
1: commonwealth or yeah.
0: citizenship. Where is your commonwealth, your citizenship in heaven or earth? That's this word making that distinction. And, and as we you talk, which way is the soul going?
1: That's it. Who's That's the it.
0: soul talking to? Who's the soul listening to? Who's the soul following? The spirit or the flesh? That's right. And uh, we're yeah. going gonna to get into a moment because this is all about his interpretation of Paul is what this whole section is about. All right? Right. Okay. So again, moving on. Uh, chapter 9, section 4, again, beginning at the bottom of 468. Flesh of itself cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but it may by inheritance— be admitted into the kingdom of God. Now, when I read that, Monsignor, I was i am not sure I get the distinction there.
1: It's a little awkward. Um, <laughs> his metaphor wouldn't apply today, but if you look at the top of page 469, he lays it out here about the bride cannot marry, but may be married, whereas the bridegroom shall come and take her to himself. Um, so he's using um, what we, we would consider a, an archaic family model <laughs> <laughs> where, where the wife doesn't have any inherent rights. Her rights are, are by virtue of the fact that her husband has chose her for himself. And he uses that m- metaphor, if you will, um, to make the point here about the flesh. I,
0: I actually can think of a way in which all this kind of applies today is that if a husband and a wife, I may get this wrong, folks, so you tax people out there, don't, you know, give me a break here. But uh, uh, if a husband works, pays Social Security, and then gets Social Security, but the wife's a homemaker, she doesn't get Social Security, but she gets it through her husband. Yeah. She can't receive Social Security except through her husband because he paid for it. You, you know, there's a little, a little comparison for today.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. That's a good way, that kind of modernizes the, the metaphor a little bit more, yeah. Um, but I guess his point is simply that um, the the body is not going anywhere unless the soul has been taken into the spirit, and then the body gets to come along because it's all one a part of an in, intrinsic whole.
0: Yeah, and if you hear it, to me, Irenaeus yelling this to the Gnostics, he's affirming with them. Yeah, the body's not going anywhere. But excuse me, guys, if you're <laughs> you, you need the Spirit of God.
1: Yeah, that's right. He, we have to we have to live by the Spirit in order to inherit life.
0: Yeah, the summary of that, that section is, true. he says, the reason Christ died is that the testament of the gospel might be open and read to the whole world so that, one, his servants might be set free, and, two, he might constitute them heirs of the kingdom of God. Therefore, don't lose the spirit and life, and therefore you need participation in the spirit. I mean, there's his evangelistic call. Yeah. Is, is what he's making there.
1: I love that idea. Is
0: that the testament of God might be opened and read to the whole world?
1: I I thought I had a note here, Marcus, um, that I thought I'd throw out at this point too Please. to help, just help illustrate a little bit more how the body, soul, and spirit work for these theologians in this early period, because uh, about twenty five years later, a Tertullian comes along. He's writing about the soul. And uh, Tertullian got involved with a charismatic group and he left the Catholic Church, the Montanists. And in in his work there, he writes very rudely about the Catholic Church. Um, And he uses the language of these different parts of the human person. So his church is a spiritual church because um, the thing that animates the Montanists is, is, he argues, the Holy Spirit. The Catholic Church on the other hand, because it's so institutional and secular, if you will, he calls that the psychic church or the animal church (laughs) because it's it's not operating at the highest level. It's operating at that middle level of the soul. You know, Um, and when I was trying to teach this sometimes to people, I would always cite, um, there's a scene early on in Adam Sandler's The Water Boy. Oh. He's in class, he's in science class, and he has to be taught about the Medusa oblongata. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I always thought, that's Tertullian, basically. Oh. Tertullian says um, that... Uh, that the Catholic Church was, is working at, at this very lower level of what a human person is, uh, an animal or a psychic, suke level, you know. You know, that, that
0: isn't that far from some of the, not all the charismatic teaching that came out in the 60s and 70s and 80s in both the Protestant and the Catholic world was bad. A lot of it was a, a true renewal and of the Spirit. But there was some bad teaching in that, it was almost just like what you're talking about is that, you know, the, that the church is missing out on the fullness of the gospel because it doesn't, it isn't expressing the charismatic gifts um, or the group of people that say, unless you speak in tongues, you can't be saved. You see, well, that's the same heresy coming out of the third century with Tertullian and the Montanists.
1: Yeah. Uh, some of us have, have bare scars from our encounters with. the charismatic movement, you know, I, I can remember somebody once telling me, if you could only speak in tongues, then we could love you more. Yeah.
0: I, I, I pastored a church that I was trying to heal because it had been divided over two different charismatic groups. One saying, unless you speak in tongues, you can't be saved. And the other group saying that everybody has a spiritual gift. They're just different, which is more in line with what the church yeah. Teaches, yeah. you know. So, but yeah. so trying to argue them, you know. And, uh, and then after a while, feeling like I've convinced the one group of the necessity of recognizing the reality of spiritual gifts and why God's given us gifts so that we might be servants and be, you know, for the good of the church. And they would say, I oh, agree. I agree. Then as they're leaving the room, say, but But if you really opened up to the Spirit, you'd speak in tongues. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. you know, one after another. Well, that's kind of what the Montanists are about. You know, of course, the other problem in those days, if I remember right, is that is the church made up of only the pure? Or does it have people on the journey?
1: That's right.
0: And that's been a problem plaguing the church all the way through Jansenism was caught up in that. I mean, all the way through to this day, who makes up the church? Well, in my mind, what's not so important is the church as to the two ways. Where are you? You know, are you a spiritual man or a carnal man? Where's the spirit? Where's your soul? And, you know, uh, he says, except the word of God and the spirit of God be in you, you will not be capable of possessing the kingdom of God. That's there. It is. That's a summary of that section. He's very black and white about it. Chapter 10, section 1 on page 469. And Monsignor, we're moving slow, but we're going to get through this whole thing, I'm telling you. Uh, God... God bless you. Yeah, yeah. He says, basically, therefore, do not reject the... Now, he uses the imagery of engrafting now. This whole section is about that whole uh, botany idea of grafting. So mm-hmm. you graft a watermelon onto an apple tree. I don't think you can do that. Excuse me. I should use a better example. But, okay, when you graft it on, are you the idea is, are you going to retain what you were, or are you going to become what you were grafted onto. That's the imagery. And so if by faith you receive the Spirit of God and you've gone towards the better, in other words, you've grown towards what you were grafted onto, and you put forth fruitful buds of that which you were grafted onto, then you will be spiritual. If, however you reject the spirit, and you continue in what you were before of the flesh, in other words, and you continue to produce that fruit, then flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Therefore, one can fall back. So watch, he says. Okay?
1: He's so good here with this metaphor of the the vine. (laughs) It just almost makes you want to just go and have a little glass of wine in Lyon yeah. today. But, <laughs> yeah. But he really knew his he knew his horticulture, didn't he? He did because I remember earlier on he talks about how the vine um uh,
0: you know a branch what's the word he used? You know, if and if you got bear I got I got a farm full of wild berries and those vines go out and replant themselves yeah. in the ground and that's how they propagate. And he talks about that in
1: yeah, and I love, I, loved, I thought right in the middle of 470, um, you know, after he talks about the, the the vines that don't produce and they have to be cut off and burned, he gives an example here. On the other hand, a wild olive receiving culture and grafted in returns quickly to the old fruitfulness of its nature. There's the hope of um, the, the reconciliation of, of sinners, if you will. Yeah.
0: In um, section 2, 470, which I think is the section you're talking about, if man by faith is engrafted, he receives the Spirit of God, he loses not the substance of the flesh, but changes the quality of his fruit, his works, and receives another name, that of spiritual man. But if no engrafting by faith, and continues in what he was, useless. Therefore, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, that, to me, is very clear that we have to willfully respond to grace and turn to God in faith and receive the Spirit and live by the Spirit and become different people. Now, those of you who who might be saying, well, duh, isn't that what the church teaches? What what I'm amazed, my point of this, is that this is clearly what Irenaeus is arguing in the second century. The trajectory Mm -hmm. of the apostolic faith, and many Christians today, by the hundreds of thousands, have lost this idea. You know where I most hear this disputed? Is when I go to a funeral, and no matter who it is and how they live their life, 99 out of 100 times the people say, well, they're going to a better place. Wait a second. That's what we're talking about here, Monsignor. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're talking about here. In, in, in This brings us to Monsignor's favorite topic in chapter 11, section 1. In which I can't wait to find out what this is going to be. Well, he gives two big lists. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's been okay. talking about engrafting or not, with the Spirit or not, whether you your soul is leaning toward the Spirit or not. He's been talking about whether you produce good fruit or not. Well, in this, he gives two lists from Scripture. The list of the carnal works, and those who do these things shall not possess the kingdom of God, And the list of spiritual works, those who do these things receive life. Now, this isn't merely Irenaeus' idea, or this isn't merely a bunch of flaming fundamentalists' idea today.
1: He's just quoting St. Paul. Yeah, Marcus and I spent uh, quite a bit of time before we started the podcast today looking up various um, translations of Scripture on this. And you made the point, a very good point, that Irenaeus was <clears throat> probably dealing with um, the Greek text of Paul here, not a translation, so he's very, very careful about how he renders it, and to compare some of this with, um, well, especially, you know, um, especially the uh, the list in um, 1 Corinthians um, six. 6, it's and especially in light of what's happened this week uh, with the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and Pope Francis making this declaration that it's not possible to for priests to bless same-sex unions. I, I, this kind of jumped out at me, and I went yeah. back to look at this again a little bit more. And Uranus, um, he is very careful here. Um, about two thirds of the way down the pages, he's he's quoting First Corinthians, um, page four seventy two, and four seventy two. Be not deceived, saith he, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor those who defile themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Um, Marcus and I. We went and looked at all these things. The Greek text is very clear that there are, there are two words that are used about, um, um, what should we call it, homosexual activity, if you will. Um, and let me point out to those of
0: you that have an RSV version of the Bible, when you look up 1 Corinthians 6, 9... And you read this section; it makes a footnote that um, oh, I lost it here. It makes a footnote that identifies the fact that two Greek words are are in the original text that in the modern translations are often rendered together as one word or different translations. How do you deal with what those two words are in the Greek text?
1: And, uh, you know, if anyone has any New Testament Greek, it's, you can easily look it up. But those words are, the first one is malikos, which um, it, it, it referred to soft, luxurious clothing, cloth. And, and it's sort of um, uh, other sense then is effeminate. And, which is uh, how,
0: let me stop with that one, yeah. which is how the King James, how the Dewey Rheims, so in other words, the first Protestant English Bible, if you will, the first Catholic English Bible, which came from the Latin, both of them translated as effeminate. And then if you look at the, the Ronald Knox version or, the, or a Protestant New American Standard Bible or the NIV, or you look at the, you know, they translated as effeminate. Okay,
1: and the the second word that that's used, um, and it's it it relates back to um, the Septuagint version of Leviticus twenty thirteen as well, are senokoites which is the word for sodomy, so it's male homosexual activity. Um, so those are the two words that that Irenaeus carefully translates here um of course we don't have we don't have his original greek but um the way that the way that our translation has it um uh effeminate neither the effeminate nor those who defile themselves with mankind um and that's yeah that's just the way they're saying sodomy yeah and i guess Mm -hmm. our point is
0: we're living in a time folks where if you if you say anything publicly against the um LGBTQ, whatever community, you're in trouble. Well, this is the tradition we bring it from, from scripture. And a lot of churches today, Christian churches today have folded to our culture. The souls of many of these churches, if you will. I hate to say that. Yeah. But going by Irenaeus, is the soul leaning to the spirit or surrendering to culture?
1: And And, and if Irenaeus was to join our conversation, he would ask, what gives you the right to change the clear apostolic tradition, the clear words that have been given to us in Scripture? What right do you have to do that?
0: And the bottom line is because we're talking about whether you're going to inherit the kingdom of God or not. Those who do these things, Paul says, yeah. you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it say at the end of Romans? When the judgment, you'll be judged on what you have done. Romans 2, on what you have done. How we've lived <laughs> our life, how we've how we've willfully acted, given on what's going on inside of our heart.
1: And And lest any of us, be proud, oh. um, that's a long list that Paul gives us here, and I'm sure that all of us have issues with one of these things or another
0: yeah when i so. when I got my wedding band here, um, in the inside of my wedding band is inscribed the list of the spiritual acts, you know, in other words, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the way I memorized it, because that's what we hoped would guide our marriage. That's what we want. That's what he's saying, are to be the way we are to live our life. Those are the fruit. We're grafted Mm -hmm. onto the Spirit by grace, and so this should be the fruit that we produce. In John chapter 15, our Lord said, I am the vine, you are the branches, talks about the necessity of abiding in him, and the fruit that we produce is what's necessary. Um, If you're not producing fruit, you get thrown into the fire. If you are producing fruit, he says you get pruned. I love that. You know, it doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. You're going to keep getting pruned so that you become better and better and better in line with the Spirit. All right, Monsignor, let's move on. We, we okay. Got, we're almost, we're getting there. Um, we're getting there, yeah. Uh-huh. There's a quote in the middle of 472 that I wanted to quote, as, and it says, As therefore he, ha, he who hath gone on to the better and hath wrought the fruit of the Spirit is to be all means saved through the communion of the Spirit. So also he who shall have remained in the aforesaid works of the flesh being truly esteemed carnal, because he receiveth not the Spirit of God, shall not be able to possess the kingdom of heaven. That's a clear summary of the whole section. There it yeah. is. is He's screaming it at his Gnostics. Folk. Okay, if we go to uh, section 2 on 473... When we did works of the flesh, we bore an image of him who is of the clay. When we were washed, believing in the name of the Lord, receiving the Spirit, we bear the image of the heavenly. We are washed from our old citizenship. And though he doesn't mention the word monsignor, I'm assuming there's some allusion here to baptism.
1: I think so. I agree with you. I that's how I read it as well too.
0: Because the idea of being washed yeah. or illuminated were some of the words that were used in the early church to. Mm-hmm. In fact, Paul in Ephesians talks about. Uh, doesn't use the word baptism, but talks about
1: being illumined by the Spirit.
0: In, I'm sorry.
1: You know, and before we leave um, section two too, I at the very end of that section, we were washed not from the substance of our body, nor from the image of the first mold, but from our old conversation in vanity. Um, In other words, what we were, this is his argument he's making against the Gnostics. We don't, our bodies have a role in our salvation. Um, And so, Baptism doesn't sort of, you know, create us into purely spiritual figures without a body. I just thought it was good to bring that out here again, too. Um, We're washed not from our essential humanity, but from um, the bad works that we've allowed to happen in our lives.
0: Now, I don't know that I want to open a can of worms here, Monsignor. But what I also hear behind here, is that we have not yet gotten to the Augustinian idea of original sin.
1: Yes, I agree with you, Marcus.
0: So the idea is not the baptism is washing away sins that we didn't commit but inherited from Adam. He's talking about being washed of that which we have committed, which means he's primarily, at this time in the church, is focusing on adult baptisms. Of men That's and women right, yeah. who have, by faith, all this stuff happens to them. They've been drawn. They've been all this this movement of the soul towards God. And in the midst of that, their faith, they are washed by being baptized. And then new their new creations, the old is gone. That which they have done is gone. And now they start over again. The old is gone. The new has come. That's right. That's right. Right. So we're, we're in an early development of, of the teaching of the church here, folks. Um, and uh, in s- chapter 12, section 1, 473, I don't think we got there. Faith is susceptible to both corruption—no, excuse me, excuse me. Flesh is susceptible to both corruption and incorruption, death, and life. That's kind of a summary as a result of all he said. Because of what the Spirit can do, therefore— Our flesh is susceptible to both corruption and incorruption, death and life. That's a summary of that. If we move on to section 2, 474, a summary of that is he makes a distinction between the breath of life and the quickening of the Spirit, and earlier on, a couple chapters ago, he Said that the soul is the breath of life. So it seems to me, Monsignor, he's making the distinction here between the soul and the spirit. Yes. And the soul is the natural Uh, man and it's for a time, but the spirit produces the spiritual man and this is for eternity.
1: mm -hmm. I agree with that. Okay.
0: And therefore he says that man was first formed, then, second, he was given a soul. And then third, he received the communion of the Spirit. That is the... And and you know what's important about this? I just recently got an email from somebody who was having a hard time in is accepting the Catholic faith because he says the Catholic Church has accepted evolution. So how can I accept the Catholic Church if it's accepted evolution? How do we believe in in, uh, salvation if we believe in evolution? And the the point is the church hasn't accepted evolution as we think of evolution, natural selection, survival of the fittest, everything happens by chance, a mutation. That's not what we're talking about. Because the church has said that it's one thing how God, in his creative act, brought things about, but the one thing we declare is that the soul of every human being is created and placed in the in the flesh of a of the being, right? Is that Am I saying it right? Mm-hmm. That's what he just said here. Right. That's what Irenaeus just said. That man is first formed, and what the church would say is, well, whether that was in an instant or over a period of time, it's all guided by God. It's all his creative act. But then two, he was given a soul. And then three, this is the issue. Which direction is that soul going? Through the reception of the spirit. Okay.
1: That's right.
0: That's right. Uh-huh. Let me move us to the end, Monster, and then I'm going to let you bring it all together with some reflections. Chapter five, excuse, chapter 12, 3 on 474. Um, the question is: which way then does one's soul
1: go? Towards the flesh or towards heaven? It's... And and the, the very beginning of that it is not one thing that dies and another thing that is quickened or that lives so there's um an affirmation the human person it's the same human person that dies and is i mean again it's the whole idea of the resurrection of the body here yeah whereas the the gnostics had you know you know well the platonists believe you know once you die the soul is finally liberated from its prison and and can fly away. Yep. Well, there's an
0: old gospel song on that: "Fly away, oh Lordy, fly, fly away." You know, when I die, I'll lose him. fly, fly away. Well, you know, it just shows you that not every hymn writer had the theology exactly right. Okay. Uh, but in the right context, and understood correctly, oh, yeah, we can that, sing yeah. that that beautiful old gospel tune. Okay. In um, sections four and five together on 475 and following, there's a, a few good quotes in there. But basically, an ignorant fleshly man can be renewed through the knowledge of God. And I really like that affirmation there. That It really confirms the, the, the importance of evangelization, proclaiming the knowledge of God, because that indeed... Can renew someone who doesn't know, doesn't understand, who's totally lost in their fleshly life.
1: I, w- I was fascinated by the those two sections because um, basically we're getting it, it's Saint Paul reflecting on who he is as a person before and after, yeah. and and it just illustrates what Irenaeus's point he's trying to make that he's it's um the um, Paul was the same person before his call as after his call in terms of the substance of his being. it What's different was the fruit that was in him because of the presence, communion of the Holy Spirit.
0: See, there's another good example of why we've got to make sure we interpret scripture within the context of the rule of faith, because one could take 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Yeah. The old is gone, the new has come. One could take that to mean that after you've been converted, you're a whole new substance. Yeah. But
1: well, that's not what. And that's what his concern was. Irenaeus' concern here was that. I just thought he that was fascinating how he was um, letting Paul speak about his own identity as as a person.
0: Galatians 2.20. Do Galatians to me look it up here so so that I um, uh, quote it correctly. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh. In other words, there's something different in me. The Spirit of God, Christ, my soul, my soul. There's a change in me, true change. It's, and it's true. And this is why those Protestants that believe, no, nothing changes inside of you. You just get covered. Imputed righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just dung covered with a covering of snow. No. You've been changed. Christ is in you. You're still the substance of who you are. But but in you the you has been changed, but it can change. But but that means a continual conversion because you can turn away. You can take Hebrews six four. Hebrews six four. Excuse me, Monsignor, I'm making this thing go much too long. Hebrews 6, 4, 4, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, that's baptism, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, that's through baptism, and have... Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. Once you've been baptized, receive the Spirit, you've tasted it, you can still turn away. And if you do, he says it's impossible. I always interpret that to be a pastoral thing, because it yeah. is almost 99% impossible from a pastoral perspective, to bring somebody back once they've tasted it and they reject it because the devil's, but nothing's impossible with God. And so that's why you keep telling the truth because an ignorant man who's caught in the flesh can come back. Can come back. Can come back. Can come back. You know, to me, folks, Irenaeus, as long as you follow him, it explains the difficult parts of Scripture. All right. We've got to push on your Monster, because I want to bring it, to hand it over to you completely. Um, if we go to two, two sections left. Chapter 12, verse 6 on 477. The creator, the word of God, restores his creatures in part and in whole. And there's a quote there that I wanted to do, I think. For the maker of all, the word of God, who also molded man at first when he formed his own work shattered by wickedness, healed it in every way, both in every particular member, even as it exists in his original mold, and also in that once for all he renewed the whole man, sound and entire, preparing him perfect for
1: himself against the resurrection. And we're going to be meeting up with, again, his Distinctive. I mean, this is probably his most distinctive idea of the the work of um, Christ recapitulating his creation, and and here is a a beautiful example of it: how he he came to fix what had been destroyed by or shattered by wickedness, and he healed it in every way. That's that's Irenaeus on recapitulation,
0: and. Um... Let's jump then, complete chapter 13. To summarize all of chapter 13, simply, and there's more in here, but of course, but to bring all of chapter 13, he gives examples of the same body that lived and then died being raised. He gives examples from Scripture of like Lazarus the same person that died was raised he gives examples of that as an example of its the same body that dies which is mortal and corruptible becomes immortal and incorruptible not of its own substance but through the lord's making
1: there's a summary of that yeah it. I, you, that's a great summary um, and he you know he especially is focusing in on the text of st paul on this um as well and you know and you know the key is that we believe in the resurrection of the body um uh, uh, these gnostics don't and that's his burden here and marcus you know i do you want to say anything more about this i think i'm fine why don't you go ahead and finish with your yeah one very short thought really um because we've gone a lot ways today but i finished i finished chapter 13 and I began to think about some of the pastoral issues that um, when, you know, we encounter from time to time in the modern world that re- remind me of Gnostics. Um, the Catholic Church is very clear um, on how important it is that we um, give the body of a deceased person a proper and honorable burial. Because that body, as Irenaeus has pointed out, that body has got a future in the resurrection. And what we find sometimes are people that have bought into a different idea that the soul is, you know, free from the body, so we can do whatever we want with the body. Um, I had to deal with a case last year that was really awkward of... um, A wonderful lady uh, who died um, after a long life, and they took her ashes and put them into six different urns or six different packages, and took them to all of her favorite places in her life and left them there. And the the Catholic Church is very very clear about this. This is not appropriate. The Church struggled for a, a while with, uh, whether it's permissible to have cremation, but now, I mean, it's very clear that that's not a problem. The question is how do we treat those cremains and are um, how do you answer the, the problem months when people
0: say, look, I opened the grave of my great, 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 great grandniece, and there's nothing
1: there. So what difference does it make? <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point. Yeah. Um, Cremation is simply to accelerate the the normal, natural process of um, the decay of the flesh. But um, the church is so clear that we don't leave, we don't leave the remains of someone on, on the shelf yeah. or scatter them about. We give them an honorable burial because those remains are going to rise again and I think this is where um, it, it just struck me. It struck me how how did we find ourselves um, having to live with all this Gnosticism again?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it remind you of something Irenaeus talked about earlier, um, I think back in maybe chapter three, about um, being careful about going beyond what God has revealed to us? Because if we, if we struggle with, well, wait a second here, is that the same body I'm going to have when I die? Because it's just going to mold away in the ground and decay, and it's gone. I mean, there's bones laying there, but what the flesh is gone, all everything's gone. How is that going to be the body? How is that connected in any way with the body I'm going to have? Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about a spiritual body. It's going to be different same but different. But how is that? Well Irenaeus would say he didn't God didn't tell us how,,
1: um, but we have the most powerful example of our Lord coming out of the tomb, and he was recognized. People could put their hands, their hand in his wounds. Yeah.
0: now he could walk through the door, but he could also eat fish, yeah. So it's a a different body, and it's one of those things that we have to accept that that's beyond us, our understanding of it. And when people get caught up in needing to know is when they get in trouble. And Irenaeus says, no, we we don't need to know. It's called trusting that there's both ends and Mm -hmm. mysteries. You know, there's three gods, but one god. How's that? Well... It's true. It's called the Trinity. How is it that Jesus is completely divine and completely human? I don't know, but it's true. We accept the reality of that. When we get caught up in the both, the either ors, like the sovereignty of God and the freedom of the will. How does that fit? It's a mystery. It's a both and. It's true. Okay, how does that look like little wafers of wheat and it certainly tastes like wine but how is that the body and blood of Christ. It's a mystery. We've we've come up with a philosophical explanation called transubstantiation, but even that doesn't describe how or what. It's just a way of us. So in in the same way with our bodies, uh, that body is as much a part of a person as that soul that has resurrected.
1: That's the heart of St. Irenaeus's argument in this section.
0: All right. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. Do you want to, hey. you want to give them a heads up mm-hmm. on what we're getting into in section 14? Um, Marcus,
1: I confess that I haven't thought about it very carefully.
0: Oh, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought you had. That's
1: the reason why I, I, uh, I, 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 I'm going to have to do some work this week. So, okay.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, so uh, we're going to jump into 14 Monsignor. would you close us today? I will. And, um, And for anyone who wants to know exactly the day that we've done this podcast, it's on the feast of another great church, Father Cyril of Jerusalem, and I thought I'll pray this prayer from um, the Divine Office, which actually can fit Irenaeus perfectly. So, Father, through Cyril of Jerusalem, you led your church to a deeper understanding of the mysteries of salvation. Let his prayers help us to know your son better and to have eternal life in all its fullness. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
0: All right. Thank you, Monsignor, for joining me today and in this. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to joining you again next week.
1: God bless. God bless.